Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Myhill and we're going to be talking all about fatigue. So for those who don't know, Dr. Myhill qualified from the Middlesex Hospital in London in 1981. She then worked for 20 years as an NHS GP before moving to an independent medical practice with a special interest in chronic fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. She's been an active member of the British Society of Ecological Medicine since 1986. She has co-authored several papers on chronic fatigue syndrome, mitochondrial dysfunction, which I've linked in the show notes, but you can also find them on her website if you're interested in reading through them. Her website, by the way, is a goldmine of information, so definitely go and check that out if this is a subject that you're interested in. She's the author of several award-winning books, including Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, It's Mitochondria, Not Hypochondria, which I love the name, and also the Paleo Ketogenic Cookbook. And we talk a little bit more about that in today's episode. Dr. Myhill is very well known and respected practitioner here in the UK and also in the chronic illness world. So I was really thrilled to have her on. And in the episode, we discuss the differences between three common diagnoses, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, fibromyalgia, how to know when fatigue is a problem or not, um, the difference with like normal fatigue versus there's something wrong, the conventional treatments and tests for fatigue and why there's such a big problem there, the impact of mitochondria, what they are and what influences them, including environmental toxicity, chronic infections, and for diet. So she talks a lot about gut health and how upper fermentation in the digestive system can actually cause um, leaky guts and then um, poor energy production overall. We talk about exercise, her thoughts on graded exercise, which is usually the common recommendation from doctors these days, and post-exertional malaise. Key nutrients, she really emphasizes a more ketogenic diet so I quiz her a little bit on that um, and why she doesn't believe that carbs are necessary to function and key nutrients like I said and her dietary approach just overall so a lot of different things I really hope you enjoy this episode so let's get straight into it well Dr Myhill that was quite the bio that I've just read so welcome to the podcast I'm so honored to have you on today thank you for inviting me and we're going to chat all about fatigue today. So I know that that's your area of expertise, but I'm interested in what ultimately made you shift from conventional medicine to more of like the functional medicine field. Oh, that's very easy. Okay. You know, the, the conventional doctors do not ask the question why. They do not look for mechanisms. They do not look for the underlying causes of disease. 
And that's what functional medicine is all about. It's asking the question, why? Why does this person have a headache? Why does this person have blood pressure? Why does this person have fatigue? And fatigue is the worst treated clinical picture in Western medicine. Um, I remember there being a, a, a study in the a general practice study, and I think 45% of all GP um, consultations at that time were, why am I tired all the time? T-A-T-T. And um, it gets brushed under the carpet, it gets waved away. There's been no proper analytical thinking going into the mechanisms of fatigue. That's why I got interested in it. Have you struggled with any health issues personally? No, I've been incredibly fortunate. <laughs> um, so no, but I have great empathy for my patients who have. And in the early days, um, the only thing I can say in my favor is at least I had the honesty to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, my first goal was realizing that the patients didn't mind me saying, I don't know, so long as we were you know, prepared to write, you go and look this up, I'll go and look that up, we'll do some tests and we'll have another thing and try and move things on. So I've been muddling my way along for four decades now. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm in a slightly better position now than I was in the early 1980s when I started on this journey. Amazing. So with fatigue and the conventional approach, what does that entail? Like what are the types of testing that's commonly done and the common treatment recommendations? Well, you know, they might do, uh, you might get basic blood tests done to look for anemia. Um, there will be some basic um, medical checks to make sure you're not in heart failure or um, respiratory failure. Uh, but once those major pathologists have been excluded, the doctors are stumped. Um, and very all too often, these patients get referred for psychiatrists on the grounds that it's all in the mind. You know, you must be a lunatic, um, what I call the psychiatric dustbin. And believe you me, all many of my chronic fatigue syndrome and any patients have been down that path. Uh, it's, it's, it's so wrong. They've been belittled um, um, and their serious fatigues have not been taken seriously. So that makes me uh, um, not just, um, uh, that makes me a very angry doctor. Yeah, and there's obviously varying degrees of severity with the fatigue. So there's three common terms or diagnosis that I just want you to differentiate just because they may be mentioned throughout the podcast. So the first one is chronic fatigue. The next one is ME. And the third is fibromyalgia, which can kind of fall under this category as well. So how would you differentiate the three? Okay, well, the important thing to recognize first is that neither of those are diagnoses. They're all clinical pictures. Chronic fatigue syndrome is characterized by poor energy delivery mechanisms. So, um, and, and arguably, we all have chronic fatigue. Uh, the, the interventions necessary to get the chronic fatigue syndrome patients up into normal energy are the same mechanisms that get uh, normal people up into super athletes. You know, we are all on that spectrum. And that's all about energy delivery mechanisms. Now, ME is caused when there is inflammation i.e. not only are there poor energy delivery mechanisms, there is also inflammation. And of course, um, only too often that inflammation is driven by low-grade chronic infection. So for those patients, I'm often asking, what is the chronic infection that is driving their ME? And very often they have a viral trigger, glandular fever, Epstein-Barr virus, maybe Lyme disease would fall into that category. Chronic infection with fungi would be the same. And then we have fibromyalgia. Now, fibromyalgia is also ME, it's also chronic fatigue mechanisms and inflammation. In that case, the inflammation is driven by allergy. 
and it might be, and my guess is an awful lot of fibromyalgia is allergy to microbes from the fermenting gut. The idea here being, you know, at medical school, I was taught, yes, the gut, the lower gut is full of bacteria and, and there's some in the upper gut, there they stay. We now know that's not true. They easily get into the bloodstream. It's called bacterial translocation or yeast translocation, and they get stuck at distal sites. And if they get stuck in the muscles, the connective tissues and the joints, they drive an inflammatory process there. And there are many disease processes that causes. But, I mean, fibromyalgia is just one of them, um, but there's also um, uh, inflammatory arthritis like rheumatoid arthritis, writer's syndrome, um, ankylosing spondylitis. These, I believe, are all driven by allergy to microbes in the fermenting gut, chronic urticaria, intrinsic asthma, irritable bladder, or, or, or chronic cystitis. I think these are all driven by the same mechanism. I'm guessing none of these mechanisms are still not, I think they're still not recognised by the conventional doctors. Is that right? Some of them have been touched upon. For example, when I was at the Middlesex Hospital, there was a consultant there called Alan Ebringer who demonstrated how ankylosing spondylitis, which is one of those, is driven by allergy to Klebsiella bacteria in the large bowel. So that was a hint of that. He then went on to show that rheumatoid arthritis may be driven by Proteus mirabilis, uh, a microbe in the, in the large bowel, and that was called molecular, uh, molecular mimicry. So it's been touched upon, but um, it's, nobody's really pulled it together into a coherent whole. But this is the joy of looking for mechanisms, because once you start to elucidate those, so many other things start to fall into place that you had no idea about. Um, so it's a, a very logical way of approaching medicine. The patients love it, of course, because all of a sudden there's some sense about it. You know, there's some um, answers to the question why. But most importantly, once you know the mechanisms, you then know what to do about it. And if the problem is driven by allergy to microbes in the fermenting gut, well, you put intervention in place to reduce the number of unfriendly microbes and improve the number of friendly microbes. And for many people, that makes the world of difference. If the problem is chronic fatigue syndrome, then you start to look at the energy delivery mechanisms. And we could talk about that all day if you wished, um, because they break down into uh, very clear categories, all of which can be treated. If the problem is ME and there's a cr chronic infection there, then let's go and identify the infection. Find out what it is. Treat it with antivirals, antifungals, antimicrobials, you know, which may be herbal, um, um, they may be um, uh, homeopathic or they may be prescription drugs. But at least we've got a, a roadmap at that point. At least we've got a plan. And then it's up to the patients to decide which path they want to follow for their particular cure. Yeah, and I do want to talk more about those root causes um, as we go on. So we'll come back to that. But with fatigue, some people just put it down to getting older or just the fact that they're working long hours or they're, they're parents. So how do we know what's normal and what's not when it comes to energy? Should we never be tired? No, no, no. no. The fact of the matter is we all suffer from fatigue. The difference between normal fatigue, because guess what, at the end of the day, I should be tired. The difference is that I'll have a night's sleep and I'll wake up the next morning and I should be as right as rain. These patients with pathological fatigue, if they overdo things a little bit, they pay for it the next day and often the next and the next and the next. It's called post-exertional malaise. If we want to draw an the, um, uh, a, a comparison from the athletic world, that is the same as overtraining. So athletes who train too hard actually reduce their, their peak performance because they're pushing themselves so much they cause tissue damage. 
And that's why athletes need a good trainer to make sure they get just the right amount of training to optimize performance. It's a little bit like that with chronic fatigue and ME, but you have to be your own personal trainer because there aren't enough to go around. So my job is to teach my patients, as I call it, the rules of the game and then give them the tools of the trade so they can sort it out themselves. So it's a process of education because there simply aren't enough therapists to go around. And would you say that there's like different types of fatigue? Because some of my clients would say, I feel like mentally exhausted and it's more in my brain versus I just physically can't get off the couch right now. How would you describe and what's maybe the differentiating factors? It depends. Um, um, I mean, and not everybody has all the same symptoms, but some people suffer from poor energy delivery to the body. And that, yes, would present with poor stamina, muscle weakness. You can't do much before you run out of energy, that sort of symptom. Those that suffer with energy delivery mechanisms to the brain, they get um, inability to concentrate, poor short-term memory, um, um, uh, they can't multitask, they can't problem solve. And then if the brain perceives that it doesn't have enough energy to work, it will give that person symptoms to stop them spending energy, like depression, anxiety, feeling stress, procrastination. And then if there's poor energy delivery to the heart, then that will manifest with physical symptoms because if the heart cannot beat powerfully as a pump, then the blood pressure will start to fall. If the blood pressure starts to fall, then you don't circulate the body with blood efficiently. It's much easier to circulate blood when the person is lying down than when they're standing up. To um, circulate the body with blood when you're vertical, you have to increase cardiac output by about 20%. And for some people, they don't have the energy delivery mechanism to even do that. And what that means is, as they stand vertical, the only way the heart can increase output is to beat faster. So it starts off going faster, but that too demands more energy. And eventually the blood pressure drops precipitously and they fall over. Now that is called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's part of the clinical picture that we see in patients with very severe fatigues. It's symptomatic of poor energy delivery to the heart. And guess what? People in heart failure do exactly the same. They can't, they can't um, uh, stand up for very long and they often fall over as an autonomic, re uh, autonomic reaction. And indeed, patients with severe chronic fatigue syndrome are in a state of heart failure. Interesting. Yeah, that's quite a statement. And I've experienced symptoms of POTS myself. I was never diagnosed. Every time that I'd go to the doctor and complain of dizziness upon standing and blacking out, they'd check my blood pressure at one. One of the um, measures was, I think, 60 over 40. Um, and they were like, mm, yeah, it's a little bit concerning. But other times they were just like, it's because you're tall. Um, it's because you're fit and healthy. And I was like, no, it's never been this low in the past. I feel ill. And they were just kind of brushing me off because I looked healthy, but in internally I wasn't. Well, those doctors were not engaging their brains. They were not <laughs> looking for the mechanisms. You know, they weren't thinking, you know, why, why is the blood pressure going so low? You know, what's the heart rate doing at the same time? You know, why, you know, why isn't the heart beating powerfully? And, and all this was actually established by an American doctor called Arnold Peckerman, who was asked to supply some, to, to generate some sort of test that was an objective measure of fatigue in patients with chronic fatigue syndrome. And he developed a test called impedance cardiography, which measures cardiac output. And guess what he found? Those persons with people with the worst levels of energy had very low cardiac output and vice versa. It's a very useful objective test of energy delivery to the heart. Okay. So is that something that you could go to the doctor and ask for? 
I wish that test is not available <laughs> in this country. It was a research tool in America. It proved a point, but it's not um, widely available. And it's, and it's not available in this country as far as I know. But the point is, you don't have to have a fancy test like that. You know, listen to the patient. You know, look at the clinical. You know, listen to the clinical clinical symptoms. Look at the clinical signs. You know, measure the blood pressure in the past lying down. Measure the blood pressure in the past standing up. It's not difficult. Anybody can do it. Um, and that tells you if you've got POTS, i.e. the blood pressure drops precipitously after maybe a few minutes of standing up, and the, the pulse uh, gets faster. There's your diagnosis. You don't need a fancy cardiologist. You can do it yourself. Are there any key blood markers that you would um, recommend doctors test or patients, clients go into the doctors asking for? Well, um, uh, all, the all data is good data, uh, if only to eliminate um, other causes of disease. But it's my experience that many of those tests are poorly interpreted. And um, the reason for that is we are given normal ranges for a test. And if you fall within the normal range, then, oh, well, you're normal. There's nothing wrong with you. And sometimes doctors are very naughty. They say, oh, all the tests are normal, so there's nothing wrong with you. But just to give you one example um, of thyroid function tests, the normal range of thyroid, T4, in the blood um, is about, well, my laboratory, it's about 12 to 22 picomoles per litre. If a result came back, at, but what's interesting is we all have our own personal normal range which may not be you know, the same as the population range. And this was a study done in the Lancet. They followed up people, they did their thyroid function test every month. And some had a personal normal range of 19 to 21. Some had a personal range of 13 to 15. Um, Professor Sir Anthony Toft, who wrote um, the BMA Guide to Treating Hypothyroidism, in his book he states, some people don't feel well until their free T4 is running at 30 picomoles per litre. If, um, if you had somebody who's um, felt you would normally you would feel well running at 30 picomoles per litre and you had a blood test that said, oh, well, you're running at 12, and the GP say, oh, there you are, you're in normal range, you're normal. But clearly, you know, they are not normal. And the second problem is um, reference ranges are established by looking at the blood tests of maybe 100 people who walk into hospital and seeing what comes up. The consequence of that is some NHS hospital reference ranges are as low as 7 to 14 um, picomoles per litre, uh, millimoles per litre, picomoles per litre. So, you know, that's a dreadful result. So you have to always, tests are just the guide. You always have to interpret them in the light of the um, clinical condition that you present with. So you look at, you listen to the patient and, and the patients are 90% correct. You know, 90% of diagnosis comes from the history and the tests merely confirm. And the key point here is that all diagnosis is hypothesis. So if somebody presents with the clinical picture of a chronic fatigue syndrome, say, then you know, you know, there are lots of possible diagnoses. You have to do with diet, poor mitochondrial function, thyroid issues, adrenal issues, anemia, blah, 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 and you end up with a differential diagnosis. And it's only when that patient is well that you can look back and say, ah, that's what it, that's what made the difference to you. You know, it was, you know, um, you had a mitochondrial issue, you had a thyroid issue, because it's the response to treatment is critical. So tests give you helpful information towards the mechanism, but the eventual diagnosis is always retrospective. Yeah, I love that you made that point as well, because I always say I want my blood work to be based on optimal health, optimal human function, not just the average people who go to the, the doctors, because they're probably not the healthiest of people if they're going for blood work. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, 
Mm. And uh, I know a big part of your work is focused on mitochondria. You've just mentioned it then. Um, we haven't really dove deep into mitochondria, so there might be a few people listening who aren't even familiar with what they are. Okay. So okay. could you take us back to science class and give us Absolutely. an overview? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a practical person, so let's start with the practical analogy. Now, with respect to energy delivery mechanisms, the, the, the analogy which I use all the time is the car analogy. And for your car to go, you've got to have the right fuel in the tank. You've then got to have the mitochondrial engine, which burns that fuel in the presence of oxygen to generate ATP, which is the energy molecule. And then you have to have the thyroid accelerator pedal and the adrenal gearbox. And they control the mitochondria. They control, first of all, how fast they go. They control how they can gear up in response to stress. And they also control the number of mitochondria you have. So the control mechanisms are as important. And um, um, with respect to mitochondria, the, you know, the starting point is always the diet, um, always the fuel in the tank, as I call it. So you know, I've got to beat that old truck out there that runs on diesel. If I put petrol into it, it would thunder on for a bit, but would eventually fail. Now the evolutionary correct fuel for mitochondria are ketones. And as I get older, I get tougher and maybe a bit wiser, I don't know, but the paleoketogenic diet is non-negotiable. And the first thing you have to do to treat mitochondria is you have to give them the correct fuel and that's ketones. Now, um, all other animals in the mammal world pretty much run on ketones. And you might say, oh, what about horses and sheep? But they eat grass, which is fermented in the gut um, to short chain fatty acids, i.e. ketones. So all those herbivores are running on ketones. The humans um, uh, evolved as hunters. Uh, they ate um, meat and fat and organ meats and eggs and fish, and they, were, they essentially ate a ketogenic diet. Yes, they ate fiber, but just like with our, um, our, our horses, and, pig, uh, horses and, and sheep, that fiber gets fermented in the large bowel, and that produces short-chain fatty acids, i.e. ketones again. So the starting point to treat any ketone, to treat any mitochondrial disorder is to give them the, the, pref, the preferred food, and that is ketones. So I start all my patients on a paleo ketogenic diet. Paleo, because it avoids the gluten grains and the dairy products, because they have all sorts of problems in their own right, one of which is allergy. And allergy to those foods is common. And, um, and, and that allergy, for example, could drive fibromyalgia. So fibromyalgia is allergy to gut microbes and may also be allergy to foods. So just by starting off with a paleoketogenic diet, that gets, us a, that gets us an awful long way. Then we have to start looking after the mitochondria. Now, mitochondria, as I said, can go slow because there's the wrong fuel in the tank. They can go slow because the control mechanisms are wrong, either thyroid and adrenal glands. But they all may also go slow because they are lacking raw materials for them to function well. And much of this I learned from two cardiologists, um, Dr. Stephen Sinatra, who wrote a wonderful book, well, The Sinatra Solution, which is all about how mitochondria are centrally, you know, centrally important in all cardiovascular disease. And he started life as a conventional cardiologist with the drugs, the pacemakers, the surgery, and ended up just using nutritional therapy for his heart patients and getting much better results because he was curing them. And the reason he was curing them is because he was improving energy delivery mechanisms to the heart. So another uh, cardiologist, Dr. Gabriella Segura in Italy. 
Dr. Um, Sinatra came up with his awesome foursome of, of, of nutrients um, to improve mitochondrial function, to which I would uh, add a, 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 further, a further one. But I learned all this through working very closely with the most brilliant biochemist called John McLaren Howard. And he developed a mitochondrial function test. And we published our first paper in 2009 with Professor Norman Boo from um, Mansfield College, Oxford, which demonstrated that those chronic fatigue syndrome patients with the worst level of energy had the worst mitochondrial function scores and vice versa. The other important thing about that study is identified the common rate limiting steps. And in order of um, importance, number one would be coenzyme Q10, then magnesium, vitamin B3, acetyl-L-carnitine, and then D-ribose as a, a rescue remedy. So that's, I think those are five key nutrients that I would use to, to feed mitochondria, to give them the raw materials that to function well. And then mitochondria may go slow because they are being blocked by something. There's something getting in the way. Um, it's a little bit like if you've got a finely tuned engine and you throw a handful of sand into it, you know, something's going to block up. Uh, many prescription drugs block mitochondrial function. One of my most hated prescriptions is um, are statins because statins inhibit the body's endogenous production of coenzyme Q10, which is the oil of the mitochondrial engine. It's the most important electron donor and acceptor um, within mitochondria. So um, um, in thinking about, well, what is it that blocks mitochondria? A very common block is just lactic acid. And lactic acid is what you produce when you overtrain, when you do too much. And that emphasizes you know, the importance of pacing. It's very boring. But if my patients don't pace well, if they don't adjust their activity so they don't pay for it the next day, it will take longer for them to get well. It's boring, but essential. Number two, products from the upper fermenting gut block mitochondria. So if you have somebody who is eating a high carbohydrate diet, with you know, lots of potatoes, rice, pasta, sugar, fruit, all that sort of stuff. Eventually, it will overwhelm their ability to digest it and their upper gut will start to ferment instead. Now, and, there, and that process drives so many pathologies. Again, this is why the ketogenic diet is so important. It's a low carbohydrate diet. It treats or it, it starves out the upper gut fermenting. So what do those microbes ferment to? Well, they might ferment to alcohol. And guess what? You know, if I had a glass of wine for breakfast, I wouldn't be able to function the rest of the day. You know, alcohol is going to inhibit mitochondria. We know it does. But not just alcohol, delactate. In cattle, delactate acidosis looks like BSE. They're falling all over the place. You know, it, it severely affects their brain function. But other things, ammoniacal compounds, for example, um, hydrogen sulfide um, is produced. So all these toxins have the potential to inhibit mitochondria. Uh, and then there are other toxins um, like hair dyes. I've seen many farmers who've been poisoned by organophosphates, women with silicon breast implants who've, had the, who've got silicon poisoning, farmers who've been poisoned by sheep dip, and so on. So we have to think about the blockers. But if you can get all those things in place, mitochondrial function will improve. And we know that from the third paper that we produced that was published in 2013, um, again, um, same authors, myself, John McLaren Howard, uh, and Professor Norman Booth from Oxford. Uh, we looked at follow-up mitochondrial function tests for those patients who had put in place the regimes. And what we found is that those patients who had done the regimes, they'd done the diet, sorted out the fermenting gut, 
taken the package of supplements, maybe done some detox regimes, their mitochondrial function improved in every, on every single occasion. And the four patients who, for, for reasons best known for themselves, didn't do the regimes, their mitochondrial function got worse. So, each, so the, the important point to take here is, we, you know, although you may not be able to access these mitochondrial function tests, and, and at the moment it's impossible because of COVID, it doesn't matter. I've now done 1,036 of those tests. I know that the interventions work well. You know, there are other, are other tests that can be done that point to where mitochondrial function is poor, but do the regimes, put everything in place, and you will get a response. Yeah, save people, your time. <laughs> save your time doing the test. Well, not just time, but money. Mm-hmm. Because if you've got chronic fatigue, often you can't work, and you haven't got the financial resources um, to, to, to spend on expensive tests. So what I'm saying to my patients is, is, is don't go and spend a fortune on tests which might be badly interpreted and don't give you the, the answers. Just do the regimes because the starting point to treat all these conditions is exactly the same. You know, the basic workup, it's so basic that I call these regimes groundhog regimes because like the film Groundhog Day where you know, our hero keeps coming back you know, in a time loop for the start of the day and, and, and going again, um, um, so do I. And if people come and see me um, for a follow-up appointment, um, I, they, we talk for a bit and I say, well, how are you getting on with the diet? Oh, well, I still have porridge for breakfast. Mm, no good. I go back to ground I say, sorry, we're in the time loop, back to diet, we've got to get that right. A very, very useful addition uh, to that, I have to say, is a, a ketone breath meter. Because instead of me saying, well, are you eating this, are you eating that? People can measure. And by measuring ketones in their breath, they can, it tells them if they're doing the diet well enough. Now, some people have complained about the ketone breath meter. They said, oh, it's not accurate. You know, oh, it doesn't give true results. But it's a super sensitive device. It's measuring things in parts per million. And it used similar technology to the breathalyzer test that you know, police use when, when hauling people over on the road. Um, so uh, the point there is, if you've got enough of fermenting gut and you're producing alcohol, you might get a positive result on the ketone breath meter. So um, 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 uh, it's important to do the diet as best as you can and then use that as a check. And I recommend people you know, check their breath after every meal to make sure they haven't overdone the carbohydrate and make sure that they are still in ketosis. And once you get established, most people run between two and four um, parts per million blowing ketones. You know, if you miss a meal or if you're working very hard, then maybe it goes up to eight, nine or ten. And just another little clinical point here. If you tell your doctor that you are in ketosis, he will panic or she will panic because the only thing doctors are taught about is diabetic ketoacidosis. Yes, that's a medical emergency. Yes, rush you off to hospital and get sorted out. But in that event, the blood sugar is in the sky. People who are running on ketones, their blood sugar is low and extremely stable. So that is the difference. So just bear that in mind before you um, proudly announce to your doctor that you are in ketosis. And what's the brand of the um, ketone meter that you use? Because it's probably varying like uh, degrees. <laughs> you know, of... I, somebody asked me that yesterday. I looked at it and said, well, it just says ketone meter okay. on there. So I can't remember. But look on Amazon, it looks like that. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yeah, there's probably like really cheap ones that aren't going to be as accurate. So try and find Well, accuracy is not key. Um, if given the choice, if there's too much sugar around, the, the body will always burn sugar in preference. So if you've got any amount of ketones, you're in ketosis. So it doesn't have to be super accurate. 
Um, but um, it's, as I say, it's just a very good clue and, and, and very helpful clinically. Okay, great. Do you love coffee, but have been told it's bad and needs to be avoided if you're struggling with hormone imbalances like acne, PMS, and period problems? Honestly, most coffee out there should be avoided because the majority are contaminated with things like mold and pesticides, which can drive inflammation and those feelings like anxiousness and jitteriness after drinking. But what if I told you there was a coffee option that tastes great, is organic and mold free, and also provides healing properties from reishi mushroom spores? Enter Organo King Coffee, my latest obsession. I didn't drink it for years because it would always wreck my sleep and leave me feeling like an anxious mess. But King Coffee does the exact opposite. Don't worry, it's not one of those fake coffee alternatives made from herbs. And if you've tried other mushroom coffee brands out there, I promise this one actually tastes good and is way better and provides so many more health benefits. If you haven't already heard of the benefits of reishi mushroom or Ganoderma, then let me give you a quick overview. It's known as the king of medicinal mushroom family due to its superpowers such as supporting healthy immune balance and being an adrenal adaptogen. This means if your immune system's overactive due to autoimmunity or suppressed because of things like chronic infections, and you're not really sure if your cortisol levels are high or low, the ratio can help to balance things out and it promotes homeostasis within the body. It's also antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, pretty much everything that we want from a product. Because of its potency, I'd recommend starting slowly if you're someone who's struggling with more complex chronic health issues or is sensitive. If you're thinking, why can't I just take a reishi mushroom supplement? Good question. Organo use a patented process to gently crack the inner and outer shell, offering 99% bioavailability of the reishi mushroom spores. I also explain this as being like the differences with probiotics. The regular lactobacillus, bifidobacterium options that we can all buy readily in health food shops have some benefit, but nowhere near as much as the spore-based probiotics that I use all the time with clients. Wanting to give Organo King Coffee a try for yourself? Visit vivanaturalhealth.myorganogold.com. This will all be spelled out and linked in the episode show notes and also my bio link on Instagram. I really hope you love it as much as I do, but now let's get back to the show. And yeah, I've got so many questions with all of that information you just gave. So we'll start with diet. So um, you recommending the ketogenic paleo style diet. So animal proteins, eggs, nuts, seeds, all of that. Is that just for when someone's trying to heal from mitochondrial dysfunction or is that to, that to continue is, it even when they're better? That is a diet for life because mitochondria are involved in almost any Western pathology you care to mention. Dementia, heart disease, cancer, just for starters. So, um, you know, my job is not just to get that person well, but I want them to live a, a, a long life at a very high level and then drop off the edge, you know, when they're 110 or 120. That's the job. And mitochondria is central to that because mitochondria determine the aging process. So this is a diet for life. It's not one to skip in with, you know, get the mitochondria right and then do something else. Because as soon as you bring sugars and carbohydrates back in, you're fueling your mitochondria incorrectly and you will just slip back into the disease state that you pulled yourself out from. So it is a diet for life. Now, I have to say, you know, people are sometimes put off by the prospect of that, but it has never been easier to do a paleo ketogenic diet. Uh, and don't laugh now, I've actually produced a cookbook where um, uh, some people have complained, oh, it's not a cookbook, you know, there aren't many recipes in there. Okay, fair point, but 
It is what you eat for those people who don't have the time, the energy, or the inclination. Now, there are two, well, I think all the chapters are worth reading, but key chapters. I worked out early on in proceedings that the biggest bar to doing a ketogenic diet was the absence of bread. And I got up early every morning for six months and I played around with, with, with seeds and with linseeds and with eggs and with raising eggs and blah, 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 until I put together a recipe for a paleo ketogenic bread. It's dead easy. I can make it in five minutes and then 10 minutes for it to kind of settle. I shape the dough, cut it into buns, and 40 minutes later, you have paleo ketogenic bread. And it looks like bread, it tastes like bread, it's got good texture. It's only 2% carbohydrate. So you know that's not going to knock you out of ketosis. You can have as much of that as you like. It's also 26% fiber. So some people say, oh, I'm, aren't I going to get constipated on the PK duck? Not if you eat the paleo bread. So that is a huge bonus. The second huge bonus is when I first started off doing elimination diets in the early 1980s, um, uh, the only substitute for dairy products was a rather nasty gray looking liquid called soya milk. And it was revolting. Now we have fantastic dairy alternatives. The vegan cheeses that are based on coconut are divine. Um, Koyo yogurt, which is a coconut-based yogurt, is delicious. Grace coconut milk, which is the one I like to use, um, pours like single cream. Um, there are some uh, vegan block butter alternatives, which are superb. So you really don't feel deprived. You've got all the dairy products and you've got the bread. The rest of the diet is easy. Another joy of the diet is I never get hungry. And because I'm running on, on fats, normally I'm running on the fats that I've consumed recently and the fiber that I've fermented recently. But if that runs out, my body just turns into, swaps into fat burning. And you know, this is of particular relevance to the athletes, the elite athletes, especially the endurance athletes. Because if you're a, a marathon runner and you're running on sugars and carbohydrates, at about 17 miles, you will hit a wall. You will run out of fuel and you will just collapse. The Americans call it bonking. Um, and, and what a different that, term in the UK. <laughs> hitting a wall. Um, so, um, so what that means is these athletes, they have to have sugar gels and sugar sweets and Mars bars as they're running around. The keto-adapted athletes, the athletes who are running on fat, they don't run out of fuel. In fact, the world record for the furthest distance run in 24 hours is held by a keto-adapted athlete called Michael Morton. And Mike ran 172 miles in 24 hours. He didn't need to eat. In fact, just another illustration, that a study recently done by a doctor down in the South called Dr. Ian Lane, I think, who is a type one diabetic. He's keto-adapted. He and five friends ran 20 miles every day for five days with no food at all. So they fasted for the duration. They didn't run out of energy, they ran perfectly well. Yes, they lost a bit of weight, but the point is they ran on fat. Um, so they were perfectly adapted to run and run and run and run. So fat is a fabulous fuel, it's evolutionarily correct. And as I say, you do that and you will not die from heart disease, you will not die from cancer and you will not die from dementia. It's a, it is the evolutionarily correct diet. So there are some arguments I want to put out there because I know that people, I've had different guests on who are saying quite the opposite. So I want to get your professional um, response to them. So the first one is ketosis is like a stress response. So it would have been like evolutionary back in the day, we would have had no food and we would have gone into ketosis as like a, 
stressful survival mode, um, that we need glucose as the preferred fuel for every cell of the body. Going too low carb is going to negatively affect the adrenals and thyroid, particularly of women. So what would you say to all of those points? Um, um, uh, the, the, the first point is ketones are the, are the evolutionary correct fuel. Now, in order to be able to fat burn, you need either thyroid hormones or adrenal hormones. Now, normally, the body fat burns with thyroid hormones. But if you have to suddenly have uh, put out a huge amount of energy, for example, um, um, if a saber-toothed tiger jumps out and you've got to run, run, run like you never have, that is done with adrenaline. So, um, uh, so in response to stress, and of course, adrenaline will produce, even if you're running on sugars, um, you, you need a, adrenaline to increase fat burning to survive that one major stress. But um, it's, that's the only point that adrenaline comes in. You know, burning fat is not a stress response. It's what you do normally um, during times of, of, of food scarcity. And that happened normally to primitive man during the winter. You know, he, he didn't have the, the same amount of foods. Uh, the whole point about eating carbohydrates during the autumn is during the autumn, we have a, a windfall, we have free food. You know, the, the fruit trees ripen, the, the seeds um, uh, come uh, to fruition, and you have root vegetables, you have nuts, and they're cut, most of those are carbohydrates, and we eat them in an addictive way. So the carbohydrate addiction gene is switched on. We can't stop eating, we eat and eat and eat them and get fat. And that fat is survival value for the winter because it's um, an insulating layer and it's also a few food source. And when we go into hibernation, you know, we shut down um, uh, energy burning. We run cold, just like we do at, at night when we sleep. We run cool and we fat burn with thyroid hormones. We don't fat burn with adrenaline unless you're hypothyroid. And that's another big story. So now I don't buy that. Um, you know, primitive man would have run on ketones probably nine months of the year he'd had a window of time when he'd eaten carbohydrates in an addictive way to get fat and that conferred survival advantage for the winter and the problem with modern life is um we never switch the carbohydrate addiction gene off we can eat carbohydrates all year round because of food supply and and, and um and supermarkets and so we do and when you when very often when people really sit down and think about it they they realize they're carbohydrate addicts they are going through the day having carbs for breakfast, snack mid-morning, maybe sweet drinks, maybe fruit juice, you know, sandwiches at lunchtime. They're snacking on carbs. And if they don't have a regular snack, they kind of feel shaky, hypo, irritable. And we call it hypoglycemia and they have to eat again. Once you are keto adapted, that all disappears. Now that business of running on sugars and carbohydrates, that is hugely stressful because every time your blood sugar goes up, damaging to the body you produce insulin but as the blood sugar comes down the brain panics oh haven't got any glucose um uh, pours out adrenaline and that is that is stressful and guess what it often does it disturbs sleep at night um, i often see people with fatigue syndrome who don't sleep well why because they're spiking adrenaline in the middle of the night due to hyperglycemia and that wakes them up and they can't go off to sleep again Another um, uh, food that does that very reliably well is alcohol. Alcohol disrupts sleep like nothing else because that um, stimulates insulin directly, drops the blood sugar, and you get an adrenaline response. And alcohol is hugely disruptive to sleep. So um, uh, I hear your question, but I just don't buy it. You know, this is the old story. If you've got a problem, if you've got a difficult question, always ask yourself, 
what happens in nature what happens in evolution you know, all other mammals are running on ketones yes yeah um uh, horses can eat oats they can eat corn but it's not good for them they get stomach ulcers you know they get um um, um uh, irritable and, and anxious you know, horses all mammals you know all grazing animals they're much better off running on grass and hay and, and haylage or whatever yeah people think that animal protein is difficult to digest so if they if the person does suspect that they have some digestive dysfunction as part of the um, fatigue which often does happen um, they think that they have to cut out meat or they feel like they can't tolerate meat it's just very heavy it sits in the stomach for hours after eating so could you talk a little bit about how to improve that, digestion that is one of the symptoms of the upper fermenting gut now um, if you have an upper fermenting gut, you are being you are fermenting carbohydrates in the stomach and the small intestine by bacteria and yeast and maybe both. Now those bacteria line the stomach and they give you a low-grade inflammation there, and that results in leaky gut. And if you've got a leaky gut, you cannot concentrate acid in the stomach. And if you haven't got acid in this, because it leaks out as fast as you, as, as you pump it in. And if you haven't got acid there, you can't digest protein. You need an acid environment to digest protein. You also need an acid environment for the stomach to empty. Because um, of the way the stomach works is that the, the plug hole of the stomach, the um, pylorus, is acid sensitive. And if the, if the stomach isn't sufficiently acid, it remains closed. It will only open up and empty when a certain acidity has been achieved. So you should normally have an, an acid stomach at rest. You eat food and that dilutes it, of course, and therefore the plug hole closes. It's only once the acid has built up in there, and that maybe takes an hour uh, or 90 minutes, that the protein has been broken down, it's been hydrolyzed by um, the acid in there, it's been broken down by pepsin, minerals have been absorbed, then it becomes an acid bath again, then the pylorus opens up and the food goes down into the duodenum and small intestine for the next, uh, next section. Uh, if you've got an upper fermenting gut, You've got a leaky gut, um, you cannot produce acid. And so you never achieve the acidity that you should, and therefore the, the plug hole won't open. So, what happens when the plug hole won't open? You feel full, you feel that, the, that that food is sitting there and not going anywhere. Often you might get reflux, burping, gastroesophageal um, dis, uh, disease, uh, reflux, hiatus hernia, water brash, maybe cough, or whatever. So, the starting point to treat all digestive disorders is restore normal acidity. And how do you do that? Cut out the carbs. You know, starve out those fermenting microbes. And then the reflux goes, the digestion is better, the stomach empties properly, and everything falls into place. One little point. The paleoketogenic diet is not a high-protein diet. It's high in fat and fiber. Protein content, you just need enough protein, maybe 800 grams a day. So people imagine you've got to settle down and eat six steaks a day. And if you do, yes, you will overwhelm your ability to digest protein. And the stomach can only cope with so much. Um, so it's not a high protein diet, it's high in fat and high in fiber. And what is it that causes the upper fermenting gut in the first place? Um, and would you also, is that, that kind of like SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth? That's one name for it. But I don't call it SIBO because that excludes the possibility of fermentation by yeast, mm -hmm. which is called the autobrewery syndrome. You know, the whole thing I call the upper fermenting gut. Why? Because the treatment is the same. You know, starve the little wretches out with the paleoketogenic diet, and then I use vitamin C to kill them. 
and that works that's a, a great combination and it really is the starting point to treat most western pathology you know, when I first started in this game, you know, I was getting a feel for all these things and what had to be done and what hadn't to be done. And I give people a shopping list of things to do. And what happened? They cherry picked the easy things. Oh, I can manage these supplements. But if you take supplements and you still got an upper fermenting gut, you don't feed you, you feed the fermenters in the upper gut. Again, little uh, clue here. From an evolutionary perspective, mitochondria are bacteria. They derive from bacteria. They have the same biochemistry as bacteria. So if you want to feed your mitochondria supplements and you take them, you're just feeding the bacteria in the gut because they love those same supplements. They also love CoQ10 and magnesium and acetylalkanthine. So you give them a lovely time. So you, you never really nourish the body properly when you've got an upper fermenting gut. And there are endless studies. People showing up with love fermenting up, they're deficient in B vitamins, they're deficient in minerals, they're deficient in mitosins, essential fatty acids, and so on. You've got to get the diet right, you've got to get the gut function right, and then you can start to nourish your body properly. And where does addressing infections and environmental toxicity come into this? Is it always start with the gut first, like heal the gut, and then address some of those if someone's still symptomatic? Correct, because one of the major sources of poisoning is from the gut. You see, if you think about it, if you've got a fermenting gut, if you've got all these evolutionary incorrect bacteria in the upper gut, which shouldn't be there, uh, Helicobacter pylori is, is one, um, you're producing A, all the products of fermentation which are toxic, as, we, as we've mentioned here, alcohol, delactate, hydrogen cipher, ammoniacal compounds. You're then producing bacterial endotoxin because you know, they produce substances to uh, keep their environment safe for there. You've got fungi and there you're producing fungal mycotoxins and all these toxins pour out into the portal vein because the, the, the uh, venous drains of the gut into the portal vein and that goes straight to the liver. Now, an astonishing statistic is that at rest, the liver consumes 27% of all the energy um, that the body generates. That's more than the heart and the brain put together. And if you are working that liver very hard, by, with all these toxins, it's taking even more energy to deal with them and even more raw materials to deal with. You know, the, the, you know, it's, the, the liver is a, um, um, a, a mass of enzymes that are detoxifying all these enzymes and dealing with the free radicals and the uh, toxic stress that's coming through. And that takes energy and raw materials. And so often people say, just doing the paleoketogenic diet, my energy is better. Why? Because the liver doesn't have to work so hard. And if you're not diverting energy to the liver, you've got energy for the rest of the body to do all the things that we call having a life. <laughs> yeah, there's no point in doing all of these like liver detox um, cleanses and herbs if you're still um, clogging everything up with infections or diet. Yeah, no point, you know, cleaning things up if you're still poisoning the system with all those nasties from the upper fermenting gut. How common and prevalent do you feel like mold toxicity and mold illnesses these days? Much more common than we think. Um, molds and fungi can, can produce problems for lots of reasons. Um, they can produce problems because you can get an infection with them. The pulmonary aspergillosis is obviously an infection with aspergillus. Um, fungal sinusitis, I think, is a major driver of chronic fatigue, and that's an infection of the airways with fungi. And women with vaginal thrush, that's an infection with the, with the fungi. Then you can get problems because they can colonize the gut and uh, ferment, as we've discussed. 
Then they can get problems because um, um, fungi in the environment can produce mycotoxins and that will poison you directly. You know, what's the best known mycotoxin? Penicillin. Now, most antibiotics are mycotoxins because they're derived, they're, they are fungal derived products. And then you can be allergic to fungi. So for example, farmer's lung is um, an allergic asthma driven by mold spores that's in moldy hay and moldy straw. So fungi and um, yeast uh, are massive drivers of disease. Um, and uh, the, the most useful test by, you know, are fungi a problem to me is go and have a holiday in a hot, dry climate. And if somebody says to me, you know, I went to Crete on holiday and I felt blooming marvellous, you know, um, my head was clear, I got some energy and I had a lovely time, immediately think, is, is this a fungal problem? Or um, if they go to a holiday into the mountains, skiing or walking holiday, if you are above 3,000 feet, there the air is so thin that um, 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 a fungi can't be maintained um, and that would be another very good clue. On the coast, you know, if you're right on the coast, um, with, in the day the winds are onshore, fungi can't grow on salt water, you get nice clean air. And again, if people say, oh, I feel much better if I go on holiday to Bort or to Aberystwyth or wherever, that's another important clue. So um, um, use the clues that are available. The test for fungal problems, you know, they're not brilliant and they're expensive. My view is, is, is a hot, holiday in a hot, dry climate or a cold, dry climate is the best test of all. People are going to love you for that. They'll be like, booking the holidays if they can go anywhere at this moment in time. Say, Dr. My Hilt only, I have to go to test my fungus. Absolutely. What about exercise? So you said before with post-exertional malaise is a common symptom. What are your thoughts on the whole graded exercise um, that conventional doctors well, it, promote? Well, it's absolute drivel. And any doctor that, that promotes that should be struck off for malpractice. Um, you know, a disease which is defined by exercise intolerance is not going to be treated by exercise. And I have seen so many people who have, you know, faithfully stuck to some grade exercise regime and made themselves much worse. Not for a few days, not for a few months, sometimes for years. Um, so graded exercise therapy for these patients with pathological fatigue is a disaster. Do not do it. I guarantee you'll make yourself worse. If you don't make yourself worse, you haven't got chronic fatigue syndrome, you've got something else. And what are some like differential diagnosis or conditions that can go along with fatigue? Well, fatigue isn't a diagnosis, it's just a symptom. But um, for example, if somebody um, was just had a pure depression, very often they are improved by exercise. But that's unusual, I have to say, a pure depression. Yeah. And what are some future new interesting things that are coming out you think in the treatment of fatigue do you think it's hopefully going to shift conventional or is there anything in the functional medicine world that you're excited about people are always looking for you know for, for the for the new treatment on the horizon and think i'll hang on in there until i'll get that you know i'll wait till stem cells come along and do that there is no new um, great treatment on the on the horizon um, don't wait for it don't look for it it's not there you have to do the basic things, do them well, and you will get better. And I now know this from literally treating thousands of patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. In fact, the workup now is so standard that I run workshops on Zoom and I have 20 people at a time and I talk all day. And just drumming into them the importance of the diet, the vitamin C, 
the mitochondrial package. It's like you know getting your car to go. You know, if your car is in the collapsed heap, you know you don't you know, look in the distance for some new part that's going to fix it. You have to go right back to basics. You, know, you have to fix the engine. You have to get the fuel in the tank. You have, to, and then you will get well. And not only will you get well, you won't then die of some nasty degenerative disease in the future. So you know, it is the starting point for absolutely everything. Don't look for some esoteric thing in the distance. It's not there. Love that. And obviously, you know your stuff. You've been in the industry for long enough. This is the area you specialize in. So I think everyone can um, really believe that that's the truth. <laughs> and I do want to finish, Dr. Myhill, with just a few more questions about you before we finish up now. So the first one is what's one product, one appliance, one gadget that you couldn't personally live without? Oh, gosh. Um, um, probably my pet puppy dog. Oh. Uh, my, you know, my, she's my great friend. I mean, I do have two daughters, but they're away. But having something to love and being loved is just the sense. That's what life is all about. So um, um, I think Nancy is my best friend and is my soulmate and is the most important gadget. Call if you want. I love that. <laughs> and could you talk a little bit just um, on the importance of emotional health and love and connection and community well um you know the way i describe to my patients is we all have a certain bucket of energy to spend in the day and then we spend so much but there are two common holes in that energy bucket one is the is the immunological hole we've talked about chronic infection allergy autoimmunity but another is the emotional hole and we are not human beings without an emotional support group around us now, it's my personal view that humans evolve to live in tribes, not in single families. And you know, if you're lucky and you're in a, in a family that works, then you're a, you're a, you're a fortunate person. But um, you know, I live in a house that's too big for me, and I'm trying to turn my house into a community, into a tribe, and I have lodges in, and we help each other, and we work together in the garden, and I'm very lucky. I've got an eco pool that we use in the winter, and we, we share jobs, um, and it's very sociable. And um, so I think that, you know, having other people around and sharing ideas um, and getting on with it is, is, is so important. You, know, you can't live on your own. It's very bad for your mental and physical and emotional health. So just live in communities and okay, that community might be the local church. It might be a local choir. It might be a gardening group, but you, you've got to mix with people as much as possible. And that's why lockdown is so damaging and so dangerous. In fact, it's my view that lockdown is now killing a lot more people than coronavirus. Absolutely. Yeah, suicide and loneliness. There's even been studies with the loneliness being worse than cigarette smoking. So it's hard science. Totally agree. And glad that you mentioned that. Um, what's something that you do every day to stay in hormonal harmony? To stay? In hormonal harmony. So that's the name of the podcast, The Hormones in Harmony. So is this something that you do okay, every day? Well, it could well, be... hormones, hormones are all downstream of all the things we've been talking about. Diet, sleep, love, lifestyle, physical exercise in the garden. You get that right and the hormones sort, sort themselves out. Mm -hmm. The hormones are just the messengers. Yeah, they are just take the messenger from, from one part of the body to another and, and try and balance things up. And, you know, I don't fiddle with hormones uh, too much. I mean, the commonest problem I see is hypothyroidism. Incredibly common. 
Um, um, Dr. Kenneth Blanchard, who's a consultant endocrinologist from America, reckons that 40% of Western women are hypothyroid, and that's often unmasked at the menopause, for example. And, you know, and these poor women get told, oh, well, it's because you're menopausal, you know, it's because you're old and you're past it, that's why you feel rubbish. So um, um, that is a, a common deficiency and, and the thing I correct most. But you know, when you get all this stuff together, the hormones just sort themselves out. Good point. And yeah, a lot of my clients come to me with PMS, fertility issues, but I, instead of like tweaking with herbs and maca powder and all of that, I go straight to the gut, the liver, the basic stress management, and it resolves Correct. the majority. <laughs> The difficult bit is persuading them to do it because the trouble is people have been led to believe by doctors there's one symptom, you know, one drug and off you go. And it just ain't like that. It's complicated, but it's the same complication throughout. You know, what I've said sounds difficult and complicated, but it's the same. You know, and I find myself repeating myself over and over and over again. Come back square one. Do the basic things really well and that gets you an awful long way, if not the whole way. Mm -hmm. people just want a quick fix but that's not what's going to happen so last question is where can people find more from you online so your website and the books that you offer yes and and these days the workshops have been very um uh, uh popular and if you go to my um sales at dr my hill they've got a, well if you go to my website um, it guides you to how you can book into a Zoom workshop and they're great fun. We do enjoy ourselves. We do have a giggle and uh, people can ask any question at any time, throw some tests at me and I'm stepping them forward. And that kind of kickstarts the whole process of, of them getting well. Because I say to people, there's only one person that's going to get you well and that's you. And my job is to give you the rules of the game and the tools to trade so you can do it yourself. I can't walk the path for you. I can talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. And if they do that, then they've got a very good chance of improving their health. I think that's a perfect way to wrap everything up. Thank you so much, Dr. Myhill. And on behalf of all the practitioners who are listening as well, we all want to thank you so much for all that you've done in the community. Um, I've attended some of your events and talks live, and I think you're amazing. I'm always learning new things from you. So thanks again for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Bless you, Vivian. You're, you're, you're spot on. You're asking all the right questions. That's very nice too. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health, as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk, for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrolment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.